begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that you have um, preserved the canon of Scripture down through the centuries against its many enemies, both scholarly and just the political enemies that have been against this canon. We thank you that you have preserved the indwelling Holy Spirit in the body of Christ who gave us the Scripture and who also helps illuminate the Scripture to our hearts. And we look to him tonight through the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Tonight, um, gosh, it's been a, a month since we got together, so let's see if we can get our heads back in gear. Um, what I'm doing here this year is we're finishing up the last of the last section of the framework, which means that we're going to deal with the, the uh, second advent and the details therewith and the end of the church age. But because there's a lot of controversy surrounding those events, we need tools to approach the events because they're really not, I mean, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And, but to do it, you need a background. And in particular, we've been looking at the background um, over the years we've been together in this framework series. We've looked at the, at the events and the doctrines from Genesis all the way up to the to book of Acts. And last year, the last thing that we did uh, was we worked with chapter 4, which is the one just preceding the handout that Carol distributed. Um, we'll get to that handout in a moment, but right now I want to kind of review, because it's been a long time, uh, what chapter 4 was all about. We, we've gone through our event train here, and um, we worked last year with the ascension of Christ. We started with the ascension of Christ and his session in heaven. And um, that gives us the location of the God-man. So that we have to keep reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ is sitting at the Father's right hand. And this is normally preached, not very much, um, but it's crucial when you start dealing with the return of Christ, because that's where he's returning from. So the position he's returning from is important, so we know what's going on here uh, as history comes to its next climactic event. So we go down through time, and that was the first, uh, first event we studied, and we referred to how the New Testament um, justifies the ascension, in terms of the Old Testament. We went through Psalm 2, Psalm, um, what's the other one? Psalm 2, we did Psalm 68, we did Psalm 110, and we did Daniel 7. So those were the four key Old Testament passages that the apostles and prophets used in the New Testament to explain what's going on here. And as they did so, they uh, all these passages refer to Jesus at the Father's right hand waiting, waiting for something to happen. And the something that has to happen is that the Lord makes the Father, makes his enemies his footstool. There's a, there's a military type defeat that has to happen prior to this return of Christ. And that is some of the dynamic that happens during the church age. 
So that was the first event, and we talked about various doctrines, various doctrinal truths associated with this event. Then we talked about after the Lord Jesus got in heaven, one of his first acts was to send the Holy Spirit to the church, to form the church. That was Pentecost. Here's the ascension, there's Pentecost. And that was the second event. And when the Holy Spirit was sent, it signaled a new ministry. Because the Holy Spirit is omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's been around. What does it mean to send him to the earth? It's almost like he takes on a body of some sort. And that, in fact, is, is nearer the truth than we would think. But the Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost. Certain things happened on the day of Pentecost. Peter got up and gave a sermon because people were speaking in foreign languages. And other people were sitting there watching this thing go on and asked about what's going on. Well, at this point, in the book of Acts, it's not clear that the church has formed at this point. Because what Peter does is he talks in Old Testament terms to Old Testament people, the Jews in Jerusalem. And he says, you crucified the Messiah. And if you would accept him, then you would be ready for the times of refreshing. Uh, That's in Acts 3 and 4. Well, while Peter's preaching this, he evidently preached the same kind of thing several times, what he was offering them was this times of refreshing. Now, that's a code word in the Jewish mind for the Old Testament kingdom. The church was not involved in that first set of, of preaching of Peter. So while Peter's doing his sermons here, however many times he did it, We believe that he was offering the Old Testament kingdom once again to Israel, following out that parable of Matthew 22, namely that the king went away, he sent his servants to those who were invited to the wedding feast, and what happened, they rejected him, so he sent some more people to the people who were uh, invited to the wedding feast, and they started killing them. And nobody was killed in the Gospels, but people were killed in Acts. So that's why we say there were two given, uh, two invitations to the kingdom. One was over here. This is invitation number one. That was rejected by Israel, nationally speaking. And this is number two over here with Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And that was rejected by the nation because the book of Acts tells us that as Acts goes on, there's rejection In Jerusalem, there's rejection in the synagogues around the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And finally, the last chapter of Acts, Acts 28, Paul says, I I give up. I'm turning to the Gentiles. And you can see that. There's a progress. So whereas the book of Acts starts out emphasizing Judaism, emphasizing Paul's message to the Jews in Jerusalem, it winds up with Paul going to Rome, talking to Gentiles. So the book of Acts is a book of transition. That's why the book of Acts is not to be considered normative for the church age. Now, there are people, dear Christians, who always want to get back to the book of Acts and make it normative. The problem with the book of Acts trying to be normative is this conflicting norms in the book of Acts. So which norm are you going to pick? In other words, there's a transition there and things are changing around. 
So after the rejection, it turns out that something new was formed on this day of Pentecost. And now we came to the third event that we studied, and that was that the church begins to emerge out of the nation Israel. And that's the story of the book of Acts. It emerges, it has a distinct identity now, it's controlled by the apostles and prophets, it's not Jerusalem-centered, there's not going to be uh, a big revival of the temple, uh, the Sabbath is not mentioned in the New Testament as a holy day to be observed. Um, you have a, a shift that takes place there. So the church becomes historically emerges. Well, then we get to chapter 4, which we're going to review right now, and that is we're studying the period of time from the apostles to our present time. That's some 1,900 plus years of maturing, the historical maturing of the church. And this is a, a very brief, superficial review of what we would call historical theology. I recommend to you, if you're interested in historical theology, there's a book out by John Hanna, H-A-N-N-A-H, called Our Legacy. And it's a nice little one-volume thing on church history. It doesn't go into all the details of church history. It's a, it's a history of the doctrinal development that went on over the last 1900 years. And John is a professor of church history, the senior professor of church history at Dallas Seminary. So it's, a, it's basically his class notes that he's published. So it's a, it's, you get a seminary education by buying the book. A uh, very good book to have. It's a reference book. Um, and I think every Christian, every one of us as Christians, need to have some idea of what's going on here. And the reason is, is because the Holy Spirit taught other Christians in other ages than just us. We're not the first people to be taught by the Holy Spirit. There's 1,900 plus years of other people who were believers who were taught by the Holy Spirit before we came along and blessed creation with our presence. So, let's see what the Holy Spirit taught the church prior to our day. And we went in and we, we divided it up into sections. And you remember that we covered the first section under this, first thing, was the church's foundation was, was solidified. It took the first two or three hundred years. So let's say this is, uh, uh, well, let's call it, um, I think I said two or three hundred years, maybe um, go ahead and make it, uh, now let's go ahead and make it uh, five hundred years. Okay? So for the first five hundred years of church history, the Holy Spirit was doing something. Now, what was the Holy Spirit doing? How do you detect what the Holy Spirit was doing in the first 500 years of church history? By reading church history and finding out where the big debates were. And basically we said that the church's debates centered on two major issues. And this is being very simplistic now, so don't take this as the detailed church history. I'm trying to be just fast and brief and overview. But there were two basic issues that were dealt with in this first 500 year period. One is the canon of scripture. What is the authority of the church? And a, there was a debate about that and there still is. And we're going to go talk about that in a few moments. C-A-N-L-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N, -N -N, but C-A-N-O-N, -N, one N in the middle. The canon of scripture. That's the Bible you hold in your hands. 
that, I mean, they didn't have a book like this when Paul was around, John was around. There was no Bible, no New Testament then. This had to come into existence. Somebody had to collect this stuff. Now, the Old Testament was there, so if you could put your hand, your thumb in where your Old Testament is, that was available in book form. But the New Testament wasn't available. So that had to be collected, and somebody had to determine what went into it and what was excluded from it. So that's the debate over the canon. And the other issue was the nature of God himself, the Trinity, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't get much more basic than that. That was the issue in the discussion. Now I want to take you to a passage of scripture that is cited by Roman Catholics to this day uh, because of the Protestant Catholic dialogue over authority. So let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 because we're going to go back and, and something you need to understand you, if you have Roman Catholic friends, their view of the church. You may disagree with it, but you should know their view of the church. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Now they will cite this verse to prove or try to prove that the church has two authorities. It has first the written word of God and second, it has the oral traditions of the apostles. So there are two authorities. And Mother Church, they believe, is the custodian of this part, oral tradition, passed down from the apostles, not in the New Testament. And that's the source of why they believe some of the things they believe. They, they claim that that's the, that goes back to the apostles. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says, So then, brethren, <coughs> stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So they say, see, that is talking about two things. By word of mouth, which is oral tradition, and by letter from us, which is written tradition. So they say, you Protestants, you say you have the authority, which is the written tradition, but we in the Roman Catholic Church, and by the way, the Eastern Orthodox Church also, we believe we have the oral tradition that goes along with the written tradition. So Protestants only have half of it, half the story. Well, the problem with that is, is how you prove that what might today be called oral tradition is actually coming from the apostles. It's easy to show it from the written tradition because we have the apostles' letters that they wrote. But the problem is with oral tradition, we don't know whether it's been distorted down through history or what. We can't get back to the apostles. So that's why after the church got into the Middle Age period, the Protestants went back and paired off and said, and their famous slogan, if you read history, out of the Protestant Reformation came this expression, sola scriptura. It didn't mean that there wasn't a possibility of oral tradition around. It meant that as far as the authority goes for deciding theology, there could only be one authority, sola, that's what S-O-L-A means, only the scripture, sola scriptura. That was the, the battle cry of the Reformation. 
And that, to this day, is what separates Protestants from Catholics. <coughs> that is, traditional Catholics from traditional Protestants. I'm not talking about modern Catholics and modern Protestants. Both of them were so screwed up they couldn't discuss anything theological anyway. But if you go back to the old Roman Catholics, the people who are the traditional Roman Catholics, the people before Vatican Council started introducing everything into the liturgy and so on, and you talk to an older Catholic, you will get a better idea of what Roman Catholics Catholicism is all about. If you don't have a Roman Catholic old friend, older person, the place to go to find out what Rome believes is the Council of, of uh, Trent. <clears throat> because the Trentine theology is the attack against Protestantism after the Reformation. That's where they let it all hang out on the table. And you want to say, and they, they said it. It's right there. It's in the history books. <clears throat> so, that was one issue that was fought out in the first 500 years, the canon. <clears throat> And basically, the New Testament, as we have it, came into existence except for a few books of the Old Testament. If you go today to a Roman Catholic Bible and you look in the table of contents, you will find that they have books in their Bible that the Protestants do not have in our Bible, such as 1st and 2nd Maccabees, such as the book of Judith. But these books are all books that was kind of circulated in the Jewish world prior to Jesus' time. So they're really Old Testament books. But the Roman Catholic New Testament looks just like our New Testament. Okay? So they have, we have Old Testament, New Testament, they have Old Testament, the apocryphal books, and the New Testament. So there's, like, they have three little parts to their Bible. <clears throat> and that goes back to the fact that they incorporated those books, whereas the Protestants said that we will only incorporate those books in the Old Testament that the Jewish rabbis, conservative rabbis, accept. So that's why we don't have those. Those were never accepted by Jewish rabbis as equal to the Old Testament authority. <clears throat> so the, the issue in these first 500 years dealt with a canon. And why was that important? Because you can't decide theology unless you agree on the sources of the theology. So you have to decide this early on. The Trinity and the Lord Jesus Christ came up for debate <clears throat> because the church went through some awful times, three or four hundred years of arguing about who Jesus was. Some people believed he was a human body, but God indwelt a human body. That was one argument. Well, the problem with that is that if Jesus Christ wasn't all human, then what, what would Jesus have to have besides a body to be fully human? A spirit, a human spirit and human soul. Well, these people didn't believe Jesus had a human spirit and human soul. They believed that it was God just took on a body and walked around. You see, the problem with that is that if that's really true, then when Jesus is fighting Satan, when Jesus isn't fighting temptation and he's God, he's not doing what we have to do. He's not doing it as a man. He's doing it as God. He's kind of cheating on the temptation issues. So that issue had to be decided. So it came out the fact that Jesus is both God and man. They had to deal with that. But once you make Jesus God, now you've got a problem with the Trinity issue. So now if Jesus is God, who is the Father? Well, he's also God. Well, who's the Holy Spirit? He's God. Well, how can God be three and be one? 
Well, in some ways God is three, and in other ways God is one. And the Bible presents us with this. In fact, the Old Testament presents us with that. And two years ago, when we were going through this big discussion in gory detail, we took you to Isaiah, a passage in Isaiah there, where the Trinity's present. Right at creation, where do you get an inclination of the, cre of the Trinity's existence? Remember? When God, yes, let us make man in whose image? Our image. Is that a singular pronoun or a plural pronoun? It is a plural pronoun. So that looks forward to the plurality of God right there in Genesis chapter 1. Well, these issues were argued about 500 years, and basically the church pretty well got it straight. Again, Roman Catholicism carried on, in addition to the canon, the uh, oral traditions, but at least agreed upon what the books were to go in the canon. And there were some Protestants, frankly, who had questions. Luther couldn't stand the book of J James, called the book of straw. And he almost threw it out of the Lutheran church. So there have been these debates, but usually the debate was because they didn't understand how James can fit with Paul. That was what was going on there. Okay, that was the first stage. That's the foundational stage in church history. Then we came to the Middle Age period. And uh, for those of you who have your notes in chapter 4, if you don't, that's okay. I'm just summarizing it here. But um, for those of you who have your notes... It's uh, page 92, and that deals with the issue of the cross. And once again, because this issue keeps coming up, it keeps coming up in our day, um, and that is what was accomplished by, the, um, by Jesus on the cross. So this is the atonement issue. And that was, if you think about it, that probably is the next 1,000 years. So, uh, from, you, from 0 to 500, you have this. From 500 to 1500, you have this. Now, what's the issue here, quickly, briefly? What's the issue? There's two issues. There's what did Jesus do on the cross, and how do we benefit from what he did on the cross? Two questions. The first question, what did Jesus do on the cross? The church was very fuzzy about this for many centuries. There were theories that Jesus gave ransom to Satan on the cross. Uh, there were other theories that were circulated around the church. That people just didn't think about it that much. They knew Jesus died for them, and they said, Jesus died for my sins, and, you know, hey, that's it, and, and didn't get pressed on it. But what did we say the Holy Spirit always does to make us grow? What kicks us in the behind? Always sends a heresy along. Always sends a crisis along. Because we don't learn unless we get our heads banged up against the wall. And that's when we are most at our learning stage. When we've messed around and, and fallen flat in our face, then we're all years. But that's the way the Holy Spirit's worked down through church history. And that's what happened here. After we got through all the heretics denying Jesus, now we have a whole group of new ones come along. Now the new guys personified in, in a guy by the name of Abelard, argued that Jesus really didn't do anything on the cross except he died a martyr's death. In other words, uh, like the people in Vietnam War used to burn, you know, the Buddhist priests used to pour gasoline on themselves and burn them to death, and that was supposed to be a big demonstration. And so what Jesus did was nothing more than what a normal martyr would do for his faith, and the cross 
What accomplishes, it just was a demonstration of integrity and martyrdom. And that's supposed to turn you on by viewing the cross as a martyrdom. Well, wasn't the cross a martyrdom? In a way, it was. But there was a lot more to it than just a martyrdom. There was something that Jesus did on the cross. What is he doing for a couple of hours while the sun didn't shine? He was absorbing the sin of the world. The sin of the world. Your sins and my sins were laid upon Jesus Christ. He was the substitutionary atonement. And the people who sat there on the day of Pentecost, when they referred to substitutionary death by the Lamb all the way from the Exodus, should have understood what was going on when Jesus died on the cross. But the guy that stood up against Abelard was another guy with a name begins with A. And his name was Anselm. So these two guys, you have the bad guy is Abelard, and the good guy was Anselm. And basically, liberal theology today follows this still. You can go to a liberal church today, and they'll talk about the cross of Christ. God will give a sermon. he use all the buzzwords. But if you listen real clearly, and begin to think about what you're listening to, you'll find that he's not really talking about Jesus' cross as an, a substitutionary atonement for our sins before a holy God. That's slaughterhouse religion, bloody religion. We don't bother with that. So the debate goes on, but the church in its core by the end of, the, of this period, realized that objectively Jesus Christ did something on the cross. We all have to face a holy, righteous God. And what you got, as far as your good works, don't cut it with Him. And what I have doesn't cut it with Him. So we're going to walk into His presence. We better have something that is the key for the door. And the only righteousness that unlocks the door is Christ's righteousness. Not ours, Christ's righteousness. You don't, you don't count, I don't count, as far as our merit. We don't have merit before God, before a holy God, not the God of the Bible. So that being the case, then we have to have a substitutionary atonement to pay for our sins. The second issue that came up, along with this, in the same period, the second period, was the issue of then, if that's so... How do these benefits get to me? And there again, two sides to the issue. The Roman Catholic Church has said that in effect, the benefits of a cross come to you on the installment plan. And you have, there's some to you in segments. That's why, again I say, the old Catholics that knew what they believed versus the new ones that don't know any more than Protestants know about it. that they believe that when you go to Mass that Jesus is re-sacrificed and that priest gets up there and he goes through his ritual that Jesus is being sacrificed again and by going and partaking of the, the, of the wafer that you are feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are thereby benefiting actually benefiting not as a memorial to his work, but as a channel transferring grace to you through that. So you get grace on the installment plan. Whereas the Protestants believe that you were justified by faith the instant you trusted in Jesus Christ. 
We have peace with God because we have been justified, Paul says. It doesn't say we are having peace with God. We have had it. In other words, past tense. It's given to us. So that's the difference of what happened here. So you see what's happening? As the centuries go on, see how slow this is? It took 500 years to get this straight, then a thousand more years to argue about this. And we really are slow learners. No wonder the church age has taken 1,900 years. It take us 1,500 years to get this understood. So then we say, okay, then what's the next issue that comes up after the, the, the Protestant Reformation? And we're still in this period. This period started around 1500, 1600, and goes on today. So we've been about 400 years in this new one, and that's the issue of what is the church, the destiny and purpose of the church. Rome believed, and you can call Roman Catholicism more than a church. The Roman Catholic idea is the church is a state as well as a church. It's a country. The Vatican is a country. They have ambassadors. We have ambassadors to the Vatican. We, are, we treat the Roman Catholic Church like it's another country. Now, if you go to Williamsburg sometime, if you ever, how many people have been to Williamsburg? Go down there and you get these guys that, you know, that play the role of the, of the colonial. Uh, had a smart guy down there one time. Uh, and I, I went in, Carol and I went into the place and uh, they were talking about uh, jury duties and so on, the colonies. And one lady said, um, and you can tell she must have come from, from the modern liberal perspective. They're always worried about somebody being discriminated against. So she came out and she said, well, I read that the, this was the Virginia, of course, Williamsburg. Well, I read that you people persecuted Roman Catholics in the colony of Virginia. And she had this very pompous, accusing attitude. You could just tell by the tone of her voice. This guy looked at her and he says, no, ma'am, we didn't persecute the Catholics. We just treated them what they are. They're foreigners. And uh, what he meant was that in the colony of Virginia and the American colonies, Catholics were considered to be citizens of another nation and therefore suspect and not fully trustable as loyal American citizens, which is very interesting. That was the source of a lot of turmoil in our early history. Uh, and it was because, not because necessarily the, the colonies were bigoted, it was just that they realized that the Roman Catholic had pledged their allegiance, ultimate allegiance, to Rome and the Vatican, not to the 13 colonies. And if that were the case, then to what country do we belong here? And I don't know, the older people here today, tonight, can remember this. Young people won't, but uh, if you remember back when uh, uh, Kennedy was elected president, we had the, the Nixon-Kennedy presidential campaign. If you think back, you know, one of the controversies that happened in that Kennedy campaign was, could we ever elect a Catholic president? Would a Catholic elected president be loyal to America, or would he be a puppet of Rome? And that was an issue then. Of course, Vatican II came along, and American Catholics don't know what the Vatican is, practically. So um, that never materialized. But that was a debate back then. Okay, now we have various things that happen here. We have the issue of politics. 
because what happened here is the church dominated politics in the medieval period. The church basically dictated who would be king. Well, when the Protestants first happened, they replaced the Roman Catholic Church state with state churches. Think about it. What was the state church in Germany? Lutheran church. What was the state church in, uh, in Switzerland? It was Zwingli and Calvin and the people in Geneva. So basically what happened was the Protestants didn't really reform the idea of the church. What they did is they broke it up in pieces and said Christians who are in Germany can form a German state church. Christians who are in Switzerland will form a Switzerland state church. And who was the guy who started the Church of England? He, he, got, he got on the outs with Rome because he divorced his wife. King Henry, Henry VIII. And so what did, the, what did the Protestants in England do? They formed a what? The state church. So you see, everywhere early Protestants went, they really hadn't thought through what the church is. And when they came to colonial America, what went on in Massachusetts? Who owned the church property in Massachusetts? Was it the local congregation or was it the town? The town was the congregation. You couldn't vote in Massachusetts unless you remember the church. The church and the state were mixed. Anybody hear the story of Roger Williams trotting down to um, Rhode Island? Thomas Hooker to Connecticut? Why were those guys ejected out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony? Because they couldn't get along with the Puritans, and if you couldn't get along with them, you weren't part of the community. Now this, historically, something happened here that you want to remember. Because now we're going to get into the nature of the church, and you've got to understand this, because when Christ comes back, all this debate about the rapture and everything else is contingent on us understanding what a church is. In Massachusetts, when the theology started to dissolve, and men and women started making compromises, how many citizens in a town would it take to dilute theology so you could take over and control the church? 51%. So all you had to have was 51% of the voters acting like unbelievers to dilute the godly people that were trying to teach the Word of God. And that's what happened in Massachusetts. The people who were the unbelievers are called the Unitarians. And Unitarianism destroyed New England. And it did so by the mechanism of the state church again. That if you were a Christian, you belonged to the church, you, you were automatically voting and you were a citizen. They, they tried to tie the church and the state together like that. And there's historically the, the folly of what happened. Okay, so out of this later on came uh, people who began to, uh, to cut this out. The early people that said no... The church is not the same as a state. We're called Anabaptist radicals. Those, that was the name in the, in the Middle Ages for the people who didn't go along with Luther and Calvin on this point. And, and the Protestants punished the, the Anabaptists. Now let's tie baptism into this and see if you can see the connection. Look at this word. See that prefix on there, A-N-A, -A, Anna? It means again. What do you mean again? Well, if the state and the church are the same, you have infant baptism carried over from Rome. 
And when a baby's baptized, they're identified as part of the church and part of the community. The problem is, as we all know, that didn't guarantee that the baby was regenerated. Didn't guarantee the baby was a real Christian, did it? It just indicated he'd gone through a ritual. So what do you suppose the Anna Baptists believed in? That after you were mature enough to decide and believe in the Lord Jesus personally, then you would be baptized again. Because you'd already been baptized as an infant. So they call these people the Anabaptists, meaning they baptize them again. And that's, by the way, from which we get the word Baptist. We, cut, we drop the ANA off. But the ANA was the sign that they said, if the community is this big, there's only a subset of the community that are genuine born-again Christians. And if there's only a subset in the community of born-again, genuine Christians, what does it mean when it comes to the state? It means that all these people are in the state. All the people were, say, Germans. You know, the guy over here, a born-again German, and an unbelieving German. They're both Germans. They're both in the same country. But only one of those two guys is a Christian. Real Christian. So that the Anabaptists were called radical Protestants. Meaning that to most Protestants, they were radical because they extended the Sola Scriptura principle to define what the church was. Later, there was a guy by the name of Darby who lived about 1830, 1820. Put it that way. Darby pulled together an idea. Now, you'll hear this from the Reform people that don't like Darby. They think he was a cultist and all the rest of it because he was the first, quote, dispensationalist. Now, let me tell you a story about Darby. First of all, he wasn't an idiot. He was a trained lawyer. He was also an ordained priest in the Anglican Church. And he had a, a, a mission in, of all places, Dublin, Ireland. And what Darby was trying to do, obviously, was win the Irish to Jesus Christ. Now, the problem, as you know, is that what's the religion of the Irish, if there's any one that's known for is Roman Catholicism. Well, now, here you've got Darby there. He's an Anglican. An Anglican is part of what church? The Church of England. The Irish don't get along with the English, haven't got along with the English for centuries. They don't get along with the English any more than the Palestinians get along with the Jews. So here's Darby over there in Dublin, and he's winning these people to Christ, meaning they were unregenerate Roman Catholics. He doesn't want to make them unregenerate Protestants. He wanted to make them regenerate Christians. So he's having a great ministry and everything's going great until the Church of England gets this clown to be the head of the Church of England, big archbishop of something, Canterbury, and he decides that he's going to make those Irish people loyal to England. So he comes out with a decree and says, if you become a Christian and join the Anglican Church, you swear your allegiance to England. Well, the Irish said, we're going to do what? We're not going to swear allegiance to this English. You see how politics got all screwed up here? Because the church's definition wasn't correct. 
So Darby, his ministry went right down the tubes. Uh, he stopped him cold. Because how can you win Irish people to Christ and then add to the gospel, oh, by the way, you've got to swear allegiance to the throne of England. That's adding something to the gospel that the gospel doesn't have in it. You don't have to swear your allegiance to the king of England to become a Christian in Ireland. But that's how politics got involved. So Darby quit. He got out. That's it. I'm sorry. And he started, he went back. He was so discouraged by this. He went back and he started studying the word of God. And it was Darby who, out of that tension, of that struggle, realized, and it's not like he originated all the ideas, it's just rather, it sort of gelled with him. These ideas were in the air. Darby isn't the, isn't the cause of dispensationalism. He's the guy that systematized it, kind of. But what he argued was this. The church is not a nation. The church cannot be identified politically. The church can only be identified by those who have personally trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Extension of the idea. The church, because it isn't a nation, isn't what in the Old Testament? What's God's channel in the Old Testament? A nation called Israel. Israel is a nation. And Darby said, and the church is not Israel. Ooh, now we've got some issues here, don't we? Because now we've got an entity clearly distinguished from Israel. Israel had the law. What's the most famous part of the law? Everybody talks about, nobody knows. Ten Commandments. Now, do the Ten Commandments apply to the church? Well, is the church under God's law? Well, yeah. But if you look in the New Testament, only nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated for the church. One isn't. And the one that isn't repeated for the church is the one that is identified with Yahweh God as the God who redeemed the nation Israel. I am the Lord your God. I have redeemed you out from the nation of Israel. Six days you shall work, and the seventh you shall rest. The signature that he is the creator, God, of the nation. The church is not given that. Now let's think about that for a minute. Why do you suppose the church isn't given that? Seventh-day Adventists believe they are. But the church, I believe, is not given quite a bit of things, by the way. The sanitary codes of the Mosaic Law. Do you read about those in the New Testament? No. Do you read about building temples? In the New Testament? No. So there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that is not repeated for the New Testament. Now think about why. Let's think about why. All those sanitary codes, the uh, identification of six days work week out of a seven-day week, that has to do with a national and political structure of a community, does it not? That's talking about laws. It's talking about a community, a nation. If the church isn't a nation, and you're going to have people like this, let's draw a picture of the church. Here's a, here's a world map, you know, arbitrary map. Here's the nations. Here's four nations, A, B, C, and D. 
And what we'll do is we'll make a little slice here, call this nation D, and this one will be Israel. Okay? Now, if I live inside this nation Israel, Israel can have its own social law codes and structures, can it not? Okay. Well, what do I do if I'm a believer in nation C? Nation C is in Israel. Nation C might not have those six days thou shalt work and seventh you will rest. Well, now what do I do? Everybody else, you know, in this nation is this way. So, what do I do in this thing? I don't have the power. I'm, you know, maybe it's King uh, C is a dictatorship ruled by King so-and-so. So now, the believer has to have a modus operandi that enables him to survive in nation A, nation B, nation C, and nation D. And he's got to have the basics so he has a personal relationship with God established. But there are certain things he can't do because he's not empowered to do those in those nations. He's got to live in a multitude of nations. And the body of Christ lives in a multitude of nations. So the New Testament wisely refrains from giving the church a lot of legislative details. So the big idea here is that the church is not Israel. Here's the basic idea. The church is not Israel. There is a difference between them. That is the essential thing, and that's the thing that we have to understand as we proceed now into the new chapter. So, I'm going to uh, point out some things on this thing that Carol handed out uh, tonight. And if you'll look at these, we'll talk more about them uh, next week. We're going to talk about the destiny of the church now. This is our last thing. So we're talking not about the destiny of Israel. We're talking about the destiny of the church. Okay. Uh, I've just reviewed the, basically the first and second paragraphs. Um, if you turn to page uh, 112, the church, it's the page that starts out with the church completed. And I'm going to cover, start to cover some quite important material now to understand the prophecy with. To grab the significance, to grasp the significance of church's destiny, we have to understand how the church's historical existence differs from that of Israel. Then we must see what features measure the progress of the church so its end can be understood. If we're talking about the end of the church age, how do we tell when the end comes? How do we tell what's going on in the church age to get to the end? See? Got to have some idea of continuity. I've listed there two key differences that distinguish Israel from the church. The first one is quite important when it comes to prophecy, and we're going to start looking. Related as a worldwide body through the New Testament, whereas Israel received news of its destiny in terms of calendar time. The church's destiny isn't related to calendar time. For example, now let's turn, if you will, to Genesis 15. Now let me give you examples. Here's how Israel's march through history is described in Scripture. It's characteristic of God's program with the nation Israel. By the way, we're not saying the church is more important than Israel. 
We're not saying that the church, you know, is, is some hyper-spiritual thing and Israel is just a peon. Israel has a very important place under God's plan. All we're saying is, you know, one is one thing and one is another. But in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13... Here's to, all the way at the beginning. This is even before it became a nation, when you just had the first Jewish family, Abraham and his sons. Now look, look at what it says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for how long? 400 years. Calendar it is measured in calendar time. So, you don't see those kind of passages in the New Testament. Well, the church is going to be around for 500 years. You don't read that in the New Testament. You read that in the Old Testament for the nation Israel. Let's, uh, let's go ahead now to Jeremiah chapter 25. Halfway through the Old Testament, past the book of Psalms, all the way to Isaiah, you'll get to Isaiah, big long book, then get to Jeremiah, and you get to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25, verse 11. Here's another example. Now let me draw a little timeline for you so you can connect this in your head um, and it makes sense. Here's Old Testament history. Here's the call of Abraham then you have Isaac, then you have Jacob, and God calls himself what? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because that's the covenant. And finally, you have the big E. What's that? Exodus. Because the family's gotten bigger, 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 bigger. Now there's lots and lots and lots of Jews in the nation Egypt. And they come out of Egypt, and that's the Exodus. So that's around 1440 B.C. They go into the land, that's conquest period, C, under Joshua, and they're in the land. And there's lots of adventures and so on. They get a, they get a king, finally, a little king, king here. And they have a split, and you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but we won't get into that detail. We don't need it right at this point. point is that God says, you disobeyed me, Negative volition here, negative volition here, negative volition here, negative volition here. I've had it with you guys, so now you're going to get the switch. And the nation is going to be disciplined. And what was the discipline of the nation Israel? Exile. They had lots of other discipline. Military defeat, their economy went to pot, climate changed on them, they had droughts. Uh, all these things were God, the Creator, who was the controller of the environment, who was disciplining his children. By the way, he's not going to destroy Israel. He's going to discipline Israel. So Israel goes into an exile. And she's going to be out of the land. Okay, now come to Jeremiah 25, verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Calendar time. So Israel is said to be in exile for 70 years. In 586 B.C., she went into captivity. 
586 minus 70 is what? 516. The 516, some of Israel come back into the land, and who were the two guys that wrote books at the time that they were going into the land? E and N. Ezra and Nehemiah. So they go back in the land, and they go on some more. point I want to show you is that their, their time in the land and out of the land, it, it's timed by calendar time. Verse 12. And it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares Jehovah, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make an everlasting distillation. I will bring upon that land my words, and so forth. If you could turn while we're in Jeremiah to Jeremiah 29, same thing. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. And in this verse, you read, for this, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. What's this place? Back to Palestine. Okay? Now, while they were in the exile during this period, who was a group of the young teenage noble people? The, the upper class, ruling class, but they were all teenagers when they were taken into captivity. And one of those young boys, who was a teenager, came to become the prime minister of two nations. His name? Daniel. Daniel became prime minister of the nation that today is Iraq. And he became the prime minister of the nation which is today Iran. Iraq and Iran had Daniel. Those two nations, historically, had one of the most brilliant foreign ministers that history has ever seen. So, Daniel was involved in these two nations. And Daniel was studying Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah wrote before Daniel probably was born. So here's the young boy. Now he's growing up. He's in his 20s. 30s, he's ascending power in the structure, by the way, on the basis of his integrity, didn't compromise anything, but he rose up because he had tremendous skills that God had given to him, and like Joseph, he used them wisely. So here he, he's floating up to the top of the political picture now, in a Gentile nation, and he's saying, wait a minute, Jeremiah said that in 70 years we could go back to the land. So, he says to himself, oh, let me check the calendar here. You know, God, it's about 70 years. So Daniel starts to pray that God, at the end of 70 years, you promise the end of this exile. Now, I'm holding you to your promise. So in Daniel chapter 9, we have God's answer to Daniel. And with this answer, we have a very interesting thing about how God works in history. And this, by the way, I'm going to introduce this to you. We're going to come back to it many times before we're over with this thing. But this is the passage of Scripture that is basically forms the outline of the book of Revelation. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. Daniel's praying. And... Um, let's get the context, because it's kind of neat. 
Uh, look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9 of Daniel. In the first year of Darius, of Median descent, that means this is, we're talking about Iran now, who was the king made over the king of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed... Now, here he is. He's telling us now what he was doing. I observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. I just gave you those two references. Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29. So Daniel sees those two references, and because he's a godly man who looks to the scriptures, he reads those scriptures, and as a politician who knows politics, he knows that this has implications for international relations. Something big is going to happen here. So he says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He really went to work in a prayer meeting. He didn't just make two-minute prayer here. So he prayed to the Lord and confessed. And notice he's, verse 5, he's confessing the sins of the nation. He doesn't just waltz in and go, Oh God, by the way, time to cash in on the promises. No, he, he went back, wasn't, you know, you're walking into the presence of holy God here. And you've got to tend, tend to our, our accounts. So he, he, you can see in verse 7, verse 8, he talks about shame. He talks about the lack of righteousness. Verse 8, the shame belongs to us, O Lord, our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. We haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse 10, Israel has transgressed thy law, turned aside. And verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We're going to study that, by the way that process. The calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and bought it on us. And the Lord is our righteous, respect to all his deeds which he has done. Now, O Lord, who brought the people out of the land of Egypt, we have sinned, we have been wicked. But in accordance with thy righteous acts, let thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. So God, listen to the prayer of thy servant. Verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me. And he gave me instruction and he talked to me. Oh, Daniel. Now, this is the messenger boy from God here. Here's Gabriel. He is a top ranking angel who outranks the other guys. So this is the guy that shows up with, with stars on his shoulder. Okay? Lots of badges down the front. This is Gabriel. And uh, he says, he gave me instruction. He said, Daniel, I've come now to give you insight. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to you for your highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and understand the vision. Now watch the word 70. Watch the numbers here. Watch the calendar time. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now what's a week? A week is, is, is a translation of the Hebrew word seven. So he's saying 70 sevens. What's 70 sevens in year time? 490. Okay? 490. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat in times of distress. Then, after 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. To the end there will be war and desolations determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction. One is decreed, is poured out, and he who makes desolate, so forth. Point is that Daniel has been told by Gabriel that yes, there's going to be an exile return in 70 years. And that's not under discussion. There's going to be a return. So that prophecy of Jeremiah will literally be fulfilled. But God has a bigger view. Not all Jews are going to be involved in this re restoration. And this restoration is only the city of Jerusalem. It's not really the whole nation. And what God says now is, I'm going to make an order of magnitude larger. It's going to take 490 years to complete what I want to do with this nation, Israel. So for 400, he says 62, what's it, uh, if you look at verse 62 weeks, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And then there will be, uh, we'll have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So you have the first sevens broken away, the, the first 490 years, you have the 62 weeks, 62 times 7, which is going to be the period between the return to the land and this event to happen in the future whatever this event is that's going to happen. The Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. And that, of course, is the prophecy of what? Crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And so, from the... From the this, by the way, is, is there's, another set, there's another set of weeks in here, so this all comes out. It turns out it's actually 482, 483 years. We'll get into this next week in the details, but I, I don't want you to get lost in the numbers here. The principle right now I want you to see is that it's calendar time and there's events out here that are marked off and we'll study the details. These events are all marked off in terms of what? Calendar time. And if you look, it doesn't require a genius to look at verse 26 and see where some of this prophecy has been fulfilled. Messiah's cut off, there's the cross, and has nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. Who destroyed Jerusalem? What nation? Rome destroyed the nation. Now, what do you think then, if you read in verse 26, that the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come, who are the people? Rome, Romans, right? A.D. 70. 
But the prophecy says the people who destroy the sanctuary are people of the prince who is to come. That's why the, the, you hear prophecies and talk about the revived Roman Empire. That's why everybody's looking at Europe now, the United Europe. Where is United Europe centering at? The old Roman Empire. So there's going to arise a man who is going to come, the prince who shall come. And verse 27 tells you what he's going to do. He's going to make a covenant with many for one seven. There's a seven-year period he's going to make a covenant. And in the middle of that seven, what's the middle, what's halfway through seven? Three and a half. In three and a half years into that period, he's going to stop the sacrifice and grain offering. In other words, he's going to interfere with a future temple that apparently is functioning. And this is, the, this is Israel's destiny. So somewhere out in the future, this is all future, there's going to be a seven-year period and halfway through that period, at three and a half, three point five years, this guy, the, the setting of the seven-year period starts off with a covenant. So there's going to be a treaty made between the Antichrist, and this is this is the anticipating things, and the nation Israel. And apparently, you infer from this, if he's going to stop sacrifices, what must be happening in the first three and a half years? They must be offering sacrifice. And how can Jews do that without a temple? So that's why prophecy students are looking at the city of Jerusalem right now. There are Jews right now in the city of Jerusalem that have already bred a red heifer. And they need the red heifer because that's the only thing acceptable for temple sacrifice. There are Jews right now building the, the utensils for the priesthood. The only thing that's a problem now is Arafat and the Muslims control the place where the temple is supposed to be built. How that's going to be resolved, we don't know. But by this period of time, when the Antichrist makes his treaty with the nation Israel, the temple must be there because they're sacrificing. And then along comes three and a half year period, right smack dab, and halfway that seven year period, this guy said, that's it. And he comes in and he stops the temple worship. And then it goes on, the book of Revelation is an expansion of this whole period. But that's all details. Don't walk away from here tonight lost in the numbers. That wasn't my intent. We'll get straighten that out afterwards. What I'm trying to get across tonight is that do you see how Israel conceives of its history in terms of calendar time? You do not see that in the New Testament. What epistle that you read ever speaks of the church life in terms of calendar time. There's only one passage, really, that could even be remotely associated with that, and that's in Thessalonians. So, we've run over a little bit tonight, and I apologize for keeping you late, a little late, but I wanted to finish that thought on page 112, that its calendar-based progress typifies Israel's existence, but not the church. There is a difference between the two. Father, we thank you again for the great plan that you have for history, that you sovereignly control every aspect of history. And while it looks chaotic down here to us, and while we don't understand many things, we trust in the authenticity and the authority of Scripture. And we know from the Scriptures that you have ordained certain things are going to take place on the table of history. And we look forward in our time 
as we see these kind of things and wonder if they are not coming to pass in our own time. But Father, we ask most of all that you would make the sense of the risen Lord Jesus Christ present to us and that we would understand our position in the church and understand our unique difference between our position as Christians in the church, the body of Christ, and the believing Jews of the Old Testament in the nation Israel. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, next week we'll move on and we'll have some more handout material. A little time here for some Q&A if you uh, want some. No questions tonight? Not even from Debbie and George? <laughs> Must be tired tonight. That's a good question, uh, Debbie answered. Does the church's <clears throat> hesitation to carry out its program impinge on the calendar preciseness of Israel? Well, actually it does in this sense that <clears throat> those weeks, I'll show you the scheme that, that, that happens there. I, I didn't want to get into the second seven-year thing because of the commandment to restore in Jerusalem. It's involved process there. And I, I, I felt like, gee, should I say that? Well, then if I did it, we, we'd get off in numbers. So that's why I aborted that. But the point is that there are periods of time in Israel's history that are clocked. And there are other periods of time that are not clocked. For example, let's go back, forget the prophecy for a moment, and go backwards. Um, if you had been a Jew at the Exodus, time of the Exodus, and you had heard... Uh, Moses talk about going into the land and you were part of that generation that was arguing and marabahing in the desert and all the rest of it and things were going and then you heard Moses come out and say this generation shall not inherit the land but will die in the desert um, would, wouldn't you get the impression that the clock had slipped a little bit in other words you hadn't been given an actual prophecy that said when you would conquer the land, but distinctly that kind of a, an event you would interpret as it's, 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 we're wasting time, we've lost time. And that's exactly what goes on in Israel's history is that when obedience doesn't happen 
time gets dragged down. And the classic instance is right here, because that exile period to Jeremiah was only going to be 70 years. But then when Daniel starts praying about it, and he's confessing the fact that even in the middle of the exile, nobody had confessed their sins. They still hadn't acknowledged, nationally, I mean, national acknowledgement of their sin. And so God says, all right, we'll just extend it some more. Extend it some more. Seventy times seven, I'm going to extend it. So what he's saying is that the years will march on before Israel nationally confesses. But, the, but then, when you get into this long period of time, it's broken up into three pieces. It's broken up that 462 period, and then there's the 70 year, seven years, and so forth, and all these little subsections that are not connected necessarily. In other words, the seven-year period is, is something yet to happen because it's the starting point of that seven-year period is when this, the prince that shall come makes a treaty. So the, set, the count is busted right now in the sense that we're operating in between the time the Messiah was cut off and the time that the prince that shall come makes that treaty. So there's another gap. And it's these gaps that are where you have this contingency going on. Uh, that Debbie's mentioning, that um, one of the contingencies has nothing to do with the church. One of the contingencies uh, that you can think about in this regard had to do with had the, had the nation listened to John the Baptist and had listened to the Lord Jesus, uh, then maybe the years wouldn't have worked out. You know, because it, Jesus was, it was too early for that whole 490 year period so you wonder well then were they doomed by the calendar not to believe well something was going on there because Jesus genuinely offered the kingdom and yet the nation rejected and it's as though the, that calendar time has to exist and beyond the calendar period of time there are these intercalations or expansions and that's what you can't control. And I'm not saying here, by standing up here and saying Israel is controlled by calendar time, I don't mean that it's all cut and dried. I'm just saying that there are chunks and periods of its existence that are clocked, periods. It's like a runner. You know, he may do five laps around the track, and the coach is sitting there and he's timing, say, the first lap and the fourth lap. Well, that's the way Israel is. There are certain time periods in history where she's clocked. And what I'm saying is that's a feature peculiar to the nation of Israel. It's not true of the church. And why I'm making this distinction now before we get any further is because the whole book of Revelation, this whole issue of what we're going to call the tribulation, is one of those periods where the clock is running for Israel. And people always want to mix Israel up with the church. And the clock has nothing to do with the church. Even the clock in the book of Revelation. The book of, that clock in the book of Revelation three and a half years and this and that, that's all taken from Daniel 9. In fact, the guy wrote his PhD dissertation not too many years ago in which he pointed out in excruciating detail that the outline of the book of Revelation is actually found in Daniel 24 through 27. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. So the book of Revelation is an expansion now of that little message that Gabriel gave Daniel with more detail. But when Gabriel gave Daniel that message, was he talking about the church? He's talking to Israel. 
It's Jewish. And so when that period of time is expanded in the book of Revelation, it's also Jewish. It's also tribulational. It's also part of the same thing because the tribulation is a period during which the clock is, is going. You know, it's, it's time and it's going to end. Once the seven-year period starts, it's going to end in seven years. And when it ends, then something interesting takes place. Because when that period ends, now Israel's transgressions are fulfilled, which must mean that they're going to confess. They're going to do what Daniel tried to do for them. And we know that how probably they're going to do it. Because what was Jesus' last words in the day, just before he was crucified when he was riding in the city of Jerusalem? He said, you will not see me again until you call, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it's speculation, but it's believed by most scholars, that conservative scholars, that, saw, that uh, Isaiah 53 will be the text that will be discovered. All of a sudden, the, the veil comes off the eyes of the nation, and they suddenly realize, what have we had here for over, see, two, three, Isaiah wrote in, say, let's say, six, seven hundred, so seven hundred, and two thousands, twenty-seven hundred, almost three, almost three thousand years, we've had Isaiah 53 in front of our face. Three thousand years, we have had Isaiah 53 in front of our faces and didn't understand what Isaiah 53 was all about. And they will then, that day, they will realize that he was struck and grieving for us and bore our sins. That's Jesus. And once they realize that and confess nationally, what did Jesus say? You'll see me. But you won't see me until you confess. Now, he's not addressing that to the church either. That is addressed to Israel. So in this sense, Debbie, as well as the church, and we'll get into how the church kind of messes around with the clock here, but this is a good case where Israel's the one that's causing the problem by not, not seeing what Isaiah 53 says. As long as she doesn't see what Isaiah 53 is talking about, we can't have the return of Christ. Because he's not going to come back until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And see, that's, if you think about it, that's a whole event in the future. Okay? And what's the trigger event for that? The nation Israel confessing the Lord Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, when it talks about the end of the church age, that event, the rapture, is said to just happen. There's no precursor there. Nowhere in the New Testament do you say, well, you can tell when Jesus is coming back because the Jews are all going to confess him as Messiah. That's not in the New Testament. It just says any day can happen. So that's the basis of why we say that second advent of Christ has to be distinguished from what we call the rapture. The coming of Christ for the church is different than the coming of Christ to the nation Israel. Because, again, there's two different entities here. So you can't just take all the pieces of prophecy and glue them together in one piece. There are details with it. And what we have to do with the second advent is what Jews had to do with the first advent. When Jesus first came... They had prophecy all lumped together too, didn't they? Because they anticipated a suffering Messiah and a glorious Messiah. So they were all lumped together. So what happened? We know that it didn't come out that way, did it? God had his... He separated the two. Now all of a sudden, ooh, 
There's a first advent and there's a second advent. Well, now we come to the second advent and lo and behold, we're going to pull it apart and find there's pieces of that too. One is the rapture and one is the second advent of Christ. And that all falls out of the structure, see? And that's why I'm, I'm trying to lay the basis for that structure. So next week when we get in, we're going to come back all the way back to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 to the mechanism of the Mosaic Covenant. And we're going to define what tribulation means. And we're going to anchor this whole idea of the tribulation to Israel's ordained program, how Jehovah administers his agenda to the world through Israel. It's all mapped out there in those early chapters. That's where you define the tribulation. And once you define the tribulation as an Israel-centered thing, then it solves a lot of these problems that people get into. Now, if you notice in the handout tonight, the, uh, there's a footnote on that first page. I think it's on the first page or the second page. I think it's the second page. And in that footnote, I point, point to something that happens if you're not careful. If you get a little sloppy. And don't see, make these careful distinguishments. Now, if you look on page, uh, page 112, See down the bottom, footnote number one. When I point out, for this reason, date setting, the end of the church and the return of Christ is doomed to failure. Why is that? I mean, without reading anything more. Because the church isn't measured by calendar time. Israel is measured by calendar time. So all date setting attempts arise from what theologians call historicism. That is, the view that biblical prophecy, chiefly in the book of Revelation, is being fulfilled by church history. Historicism became widely popular during the Reformation when Protestants saw themselves suffering under the tribulation of Rome. Through historicism, they were able to argue that the Pope was the Antichrist. See their thinking? That's why historicism became popular in the Middle Ages. Historicism reached a frenzied peak with the Seventh-day Adventism's founder, William Miller, who predicted Christ's return in 1844. This debacle and Protestantism's strengthened position led to the demise of historicism. Even today, however, and here's the point for us, even today, however, confused prophecy students occasionally drift into historicism in trying to set dates for Christ's return. The problem here is that the church isn't Israel and isn't regulated in the same manner that God uses for Israel. I'll give you a modern example of where this had a horrible, uh, political, divisive effect in our country, in, in our lifetime. Remember Waco? The, the guy that, for Koresh, or whatever his name was, you know what his background was and how he got that cult started at Waco? He, was a seven, he came out of Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he had believed that he was the one who was going to end the tribulation. And he got all screwed up into historicism. He was setting dates. See, these people always get into they're going to set dates. And Koresh believed that the return of Christ was very imminent. That's why he had everybody gathering guns and everything in his little place in, in Waco. And the news media, of course, they never get the point because the news media don't read the Bible. They don't understand where this guy was coming from. It's obvious where Koresh was coming from if you know his background. He came out of Venice. It's just historicism playing out. 
But there's an example in our modern American history of somebody that didn't put two and two and got four, got five instead, and wound up doing some fool thing like that. So that's how you can get trapped in historicism. Koresh at Waco was a historicist. And there was another guy, begins with W, and his name I saw in Christian bookstores back in, wasn't it in 1990? Paul, you remember that book that came out, The Timing of the Rapture? It was going to be in 1988, wasn't it? Or somebody? Forget the guy. Yeah, I forgot the title of it too. But there was a book out, and you could buy it in the Christian bookstores. That Christ is coming in 1998 or 1988 or something. It never happened. And, and every time some fool does that, the whole world laughs at it. And they should, because it's wrong. It's not coming from the Bible. But if you read his book, he does the same thing. He's trying to put the church inside the calendar. See, that's the only way you can do it. And you can't put the church. That's why I'm going through all this. The church is not on a clock. Israel is on a clock. Okay, well, we kind of shot our wad here in time, but uh, next week we'll get into the mechanics of the tribulation as it all spelled out to Israel.